together. Let's go ahead and open our Bibles uh, to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel is where we're going to be. If you did not bring a Bible, you're going to want one. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 13. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's a blue Bible underneath the seat you are sitting in, 1 Samuel 13. And in that blue Bible, it's really easy, it's on page 260, 260. you'll find 1 Samuel chapter 13 there. Uh, we have been in this series only for three weeks now, We're just, just kind of barely dipping our toes into the book of 1 Samuel. And in the, first, in the book of 1 Samuel, we're seeing the, the, the unfolding of the story of kings. Kings, and so we've called this series Kingdom Come, right? From the Lord's Prayer, um, that kingdom come, that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The, the beginning of this idea of a kingdom begins in 1 Samuel. Last week we saw the people long for a king. They said, we don't, we don't want God anymore. What we want is a king. We want to be like all the other nations. A couple weeks ago we looked at that. And last week we saw a picture of the first king, right? His name is Saul, the first king of Israel, Saul. And I said last week that there's a, there's a little teeny tiny story in the beginning of, of, of Saul's uh, kingship that reveals everything you need to know about Saul. When Saul is going to be declared king, the entire nation of Israel gathers together and Samuel says, all right, and Saul is going to be king. And he's nowhere to be found. He's nowhere to be found. Turns out he's hiding in the baggage. He's, in, he's literally hiding in the suitcases. He, you know, he's afraid. And what we find out about Saul in that, in that story is that Saul suffers from something that most of us suffer from. In some way, shape, or form, you, you suffer with this in some way, shape, or form. It's the fear of man. The fear of man. The fear, we fear man more than we fear God. And this takes different forms at different times in our lives. And it takes different forms in, in Saul's life. Last week, we looked at the fear of our inadequacies being exposed. What happens if people find out I'm not good enough? What would happen if they find out that I'm not the best dad in the world? What would happen if they find out that I'm not the, the greatest boss or the greatest husband or the greatest wife or the greatest mom or the greatest whatever? What happens when they find out that I'm not good enough to be king? Saul's afraid of his inadequacies being exposed. And last week we talked about that that, that fear it is a, it's an accurate fear. You're not the world's greatest dad. I don't care what your coffee mug says. You're just not. It's an accurate fear. You're not. Saul's not ready to be king. He doesn't know anything about being king. He's not ready. But we also said that that fear is irrational. It's accurate, but it's irrational because God has already said, Saul, you're my boy. You're the guy that I want to be king, and I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to deliver all of the enemies of Israel into your hands. God has declared that to Saul in advance. And Saul knows this, but he still trembles in fear. This morning we're going to look at a new form of the fear of man, a new way that this fear manifests itself. It's the fear of what is about to happen, the fear of what might happen, okay? The fear of what might happen. I'm afraid that this thing might happen to me, that this thing might be done to me, or that, the, that this thing might take place in my life. And what comes out of that, what we're going to see this morning, is an action. It moves us to action. When we're afraid that something's going to happen, we act. We act. And if we're not careful, more often than not, if we are not extremely careful, if we're not cognizant of this, that action will be a sinful action. And it is with Saul. And I know that you've seen this in your own life. It, is, it has been with you in the past. The fear of what might happen creates sin in our lives because where the fear of man increases, the fear of God decreases, and sin abounds. 
ups and abounds. So let's look at the story together. We're going to pick it up in chapter 13, as I said earlier. 1 Samuel 13, we're going to pick it up in verse 1, and we're going to read the first 14 verses. Um, we believe here at Flourishing Grace that this book is the Word of God, that He's given this to us as an unbelievable gift, a gracious gift from our God. We believe that every letter and every word and every page is there because He wants it to be there. If He didn't, it would not be. And so in reverence to this, would you stand with me as I read it, if you're able? If you're able, stand with me, and I'll read this for us this morning. From chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Saul was blank years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for two years over Israel. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul at Mishmash in the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan, that's Saul's son, and Gebeth of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan was at Gebah, and the Philistines heard of it. Sorry, Jonathan defeated the garrisons of the, the garrison of the Philistines at man. I gotta learn how to read. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Gabah, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all of the land, saying, They let the Hebrews hear. And all of Israel heard it. Yet Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. And also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And all the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Belhaven, of Bethaven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for they were hard pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. The Hebrews and some of the Hebrews crossed the, for the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all of the people followed him trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring me the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Mishmash, I said, now the Philistines will come up down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself, and I offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of your Lord, your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can have a seat. At this point in time in the story, so last week, right, Saul's found hiding in the baggage. Saul becomes the king of Israel, 
And actually, his first actions are pretty good. He's, he's faithful to the Lord. He defeats the Ammonites, this, this, army, this, this army that's in the land, that's in the region. He presses them back, defeats them, destroys them. And the people are like, yes, Saul's the man. He's our king. Let's go. This is awesome. And so Saul begins to kind of recruit his army. He's, he, he picks out the 3,000 kind of best guys. He takes 2,000. He gives 1,000 to his son. And his son, Jonathan, they go, they defeat a garrison of Philistine soldiers. Now, the Philistines are going to be a thorn in the side of Israel for a while. These are battle-hardened, tough guys. And Jonathan defeats their little garrison there in the region, in the land of Israel. The people of Israel hear about it, and they know it's, it's on now. It's, it's on. Like, we, we, just, we just poke the bear. And so Saul calls the men of Israel to, to muster and get ready to fight. And here comes the Philistine army. They come marching in. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horses, and more foot soldiers than they can possibly count. So it's like the sand on the seashore. Just so many, they can't even count them all. And the people act. There's a fear. There's a fear of what might happen. And, and as I said last week, when we, when we experience the fear of man, these fears are accurate fears. They're accurate fears, right? When you see battle-hardened soldiers who outnumber the sand on the seashore marching towards you, that's an accurate fear. We aren't going to make it, right? We don't stand a chance. And so there's two different reactions that happen. You see the action of the people of Israel, and you see the action of Saul. And later we'll see the action of Samuel. But the first two are the actions of the people. The people um, run. They hide, right? It literally says they're hiding themselves in rocks, and in caves and in tombs, they're literally hiding out with dead bodies. You're like, that's better than this, right? They're like, like, get me some crackers and bury me in the grave. And like, we'll just see what happens. I'll come out after three days and we'll see if I'm if we're still alive. We'll see where everything's at. Right? They're literally hiding in, in tombs and in cisterns. They're looking for pots. They're like, wherever I can fit, hide me there. So you see an action of the people to hide, to run. But then we see an action of Saul. Saul's action is different. He, he's the king. He's responsible. Saul believes, and to his credit, he believes that God can actually defeat the Philistines. He believes that. He knows that God is greater than any army. He knows that God is more powerful than man. He's not, he, he knows that. But at the same time, he does fear. He fears that God will not do that. He sees his people scattering Every single day, he's losing more and more men, and the time is ticking away. Now, in this culture, in this, in this ancient Israelite culture, these Hebrew people, um, they, they would have made a, a sacrifice to God. They would have offered a burnt offering and a peace offering, offering. And the only person that's allowed to do that is the priest. No, no one is allowed to touch such a holy thing, such a sacred thing. Just like we talked about earlier with, with communion, this is a holy and fearful and sacred thing to make this offering to God. There's been a commanded way to do this, and a commanded way to not do this. And so Saul is waiting on Samuel. Samuel's the only one that can do this. Samuel's the only one that can make this offering. And so Samuel says, I'm going to be there. Don't you worry. I'll be there. And days begin to go by, and he's not there. More time goes by, and he's not there. And now it's the last day, and the last hour, and Samuel's not there. And Saul's like, what am I going to do? There's no way. There's no way. Right? What Saul begins to believe is that if God is going to act, I must act. 
I'm in control of God. He like the genie in a bottle. If if I just if I just kind of rub this thing, if I if I just check off the list, if I do all the things, then God's going to do the things that I want Him to do. That's what Saul's beginning to believe. He's like, I I know that He's powerful. I know that He's mighty. I know that He can do things that I can't do. I know that He can destroy the Philistines, but only if I'm righteous. Only if I'm checking off all the boxes and doing the right things. And that's not true. That's not true. God's love for you and God's love for me is not based on our righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. Isaiah says that our most righteous deeds are as filthy rags before him. There's there's no check boxes. There's no ordinances that we must obey in order to gain his favor. We obey the ordinances of God based on already receiving his favor. But Saul says, no, 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 no. I've got to do all the right things in order to get God to do the thing that I want to do. And so Saul takes matters into his own hands. Out of fear, he acts, and his act is a sinful act. He says, bring the burn offering here. Bring the peace offering here. How hard can it be? Right? You just light it on fire. Right? You don't have to be a master chef to like burn this meat. All you got to do is burn the meat. Right? That's all you got to do. And so Saul lights it up. And he offers the burn offering to God. And in that moment, Samuel walks up. And Samuel's first words are actually the very first words of God when, when Adam and Eve first sinned. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden in Genesis 3, God walks up. He says, what have you done? Samuel walks up to Saul. He says, what have you done? What have you done? Saul acted in fear. The fear of man caused Saul to act in a way that was not right. It was hurried. It was quick. It was not thought out. Fear caused him to do something sinful. And this is often how it goes. The fear of man creates sin in our lives. I said earlier, as the fear of man increases, the fear of God decreases, and sin abounds. We will do anything to protect ourselves. When we think something is going to happen, we fear what might happen. We'll do anything to protect ourselves. We, we will lie, we'll cheat, we'll cover, we'll do whatever it takes, like whatever it takes to protect me, to protect my comfort, to protect my security, to protect my dreams, to protect my future. We'll do anything that it takes to cover those things. And that's what Saul does. We've all experienced this. Maybe there was a moment when you, uh, fellas, maybe you destroyed your wife's favorite blank, whatever that might be, right? You, you literally, you ruined it, right? You put it in the, in the washer with, with the, the red sweater, with the white things, and it just didn't work out well for you. Or maybe, maybe you accidentally dropped it down the sink. I don't know what it was. I don't know what you did, right? Or maybe it's the other way around. Ladies, maybe you destroyed your husband's favorite blank, right? Uh, you, you, the brand new car, like first day, backed it into the garage. You're like, what are you doing, right? Judging by some elbows I see, I'm not far off. Um, and in that moment, in that moment, you're just like, what am I going to do, right? So last week we looked at the fear of our inadequacies being exposed. We talked about how we hide that. But you can't hide from this one. You can't hide, right? Like it's like, oh, my spouse is going to be home soon, so I'm just going to hide in the closet for a few days. Like it doesn't work out that way. It's, that's awkward and strange and weird, and you wouldn't do that, right? Hiding doesn't work. It doesn't work. Maybe for you, it's a, maybe you're a student, maybe you're in college or in high school, and there's a test approaching, and you know that you're not ready, and you're trying, but you're just like, I don't understand this information, and you're afraid of what might happen. 
And so, so you create a plan. You create a plan. You can't hide, right? Not, not showing up to a class isn't going to work very well. And so, you, so you, you don't hide. You sit by someone who you know is smart enough, and you look at their answers, and you copy that. Or, or maybe, maybe uh, you hear your company is about to sell or merge with another company, and you know there's going to be mass layoffs across the company. And so you begin to position yourself. You begin to cozy up to your boss and take him out to lunch, and you begin to tell him about how all of the other employees are failing here and failing here and failing here and failing here. You just throw them all under the bus. We will do anything to protect ourselves, and we are afraid of what might happen. And so when we see in our lives, when we experience a fear and we're afraid, man, what's going to happen when? When I have to take that test, when the layoffs come, when my spouse gets home, what's going to happen? When you experience that fear of what might happen, stop. This is your warning, man. Your next action is crucial. It's going to go one of two ways. It's going to go one of two ways. Saul takes the role of priest. He chooses the sinful action. He chooses the sinful action. And we know that we've chosen the sinful action when we see, when we see a symptom of this. The symptom of choosing the sinful action and the fear of what might happen is self-justification. Okay? Self-justification is always linked to this. It's always linked to this, right? Self-justification is when we say, uh, self-justification is not when we say, listen, I've done the right thing, and here's what I've done. Self-justification is, I know this isn't okay, but it's actually okay because here, right? This is what Saul does. L look at the language that he uses, starting um, in verse um, 11, right? Samuel says, what have you done? which is the first words of God in Genesis 3. And what did Adam and Eve do? Justify their sin. What does Saul do? Justifies his sin. Saul says, when I saw the people were scattering from me, it's the people's fault. It's the people's fault. Look at them. They're cowards. They're running. They're on their way. Like, when I saw them scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, it's your fault too. You're late, bro. I don't know if you realize that, but you said you're going to be here, and you're, you're running a little bit late, right? So it's the people's fault. They're running. It's your fault. You're late. And the Philistines, the Philistines had mustered at mishmash, right? Do you see how many there are? There's thousands and thousands and thousands of them. We don't stand a chance. What do you expect me to do? And then he even goes on. He says, the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. He blames God, too. God's not going to show up. I know he's not going to show up unless I do this thing. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said, you have done foolishly. Saul launches into this massive self-justification moment. Listen, I, I, listen I, I know I'm not supposed to do this. I force myself because, well, the, the people are running away. They're scared, and they don't, they're not trusting the Lord. And you're late. You're not on time. Like, man, you're, you're the priest. You're supposed to be on time for things. Um, and, and then the Philistines, like, look how many people there are, right? And, and the Lord's not going to do it unless we do this thing. And so it's everybody else's fault except for me. Man, when you see this in your life, when you see this in your life, 
you've got to ask the question, what am I fearing? Self-justification is when you say, listen, I know this is probably isn't okay. It's probably not right. I, but it's okay because this person did this and that person did that and this thing was this way and I didn't, couldn't control this and that happened that way. and I, Right? Self-justification. And the reality is you're doing that out of a fear of man. Not only does Saul fear what might happen in the Philistines, but he fears what might happen now that he's been busted with Samuel. Samuel shows up and he sees what's gone down, and so he's going to self-justify. He's going to justify his actions before Samuel. Right? When, the, when your spouse gets home and you begin to say, no, 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 look, I got you a new sweater because I wanted you to have that thing that I ruined. And I, it's fine. And like, I know what I did was wrong, but it's fine. Look, I got you a new one, and, and I want you to have that. No, you, don't, you didn't get that because you want them to be happy. You got that because you didn't want them to be angry with you. Right? When, you're, when your teacher catches you cheating on the test, you're like, no, no, it's really okay. Right? It's, it's really okay. Like, they gave me permission to look on it. Like, no, 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 it's not okay. It's not okay. When, when, your, when your boss comes in and he says, listen, I heard that you've been, been throwing all the other employees underneath the bus. Like, what, what are you doing? Like, no, no, no. Like, I just wanted you to know that they, they're not very good at their jobs. Like, that's all. I, I'm, I'm trying to protect you. That's all about me caring for you. That's not true. You're just trying to care for yourself. Self-justification is a symptom that is deeply linked to the fear of what might happen, to the action when we act out of fear of what might happen. We fear what might happen. We fear man. We act sinfully. And then we seek to justify that sin. We seek to justify that sin. I said earlier that there's one of two things that's going to happen. Self-justification is one. The opposite of self-justification is confession. Dietrich Bonhoeffer actually said that, the, that, that self-justification is the last stronghold of sin. It's the last stronghold of sin. That, that the last thing that we're kind of clinging to in the midst of our sin is, is justification. No, 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 I know it's sin. I know it's not right, but it's okay because no, 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 no. Confession is the opposite of self-justification. Self-justification and, and confession are opposed to each other. And the truth is, the reality is that you must hear this. We think in our minds that if I justify my sin, if I justify my sin, It'll actually smooth things over. It'll smooth it all over. It'll help my friendship. It'll help my relationship with my spouse. It'll help my relationship with my teacher and classmates. It'll help my relationship with my boss and coworkers. If I can just get them to understand that it's not that bad, it'll all be okay. That is absolutely not true. Never. Self-justification divides and destroys community and relationship. Confession unites and brings it together. Confession. We are desperate for confession. It doesn't make sense in our mind. We think, man, if I confess, if I come clean, if I tell them what I actually did and why I actually did it, and I tell them that I'm wrong, they're never going to like me anymore. That's not true. That's not true. Yes, parents, you know it's not true. If you have kids, you know it's not true. You know that if your kid comes and you're like, like did you do this? And they're like, no. But you find out that you did, they're in way worse trouble. Way worse trouble than if they would have just said, man, this happened and I'm sorry. 
Bonhoeffer writes about this in his work, Life Together, short little work that is life-changing and profound. If you have not read Life Together, you need to read Life Together. It's just short little work. We actually have it at that little merch table on your way out. You can, you can grab a copy. You can buy a copy today on your, on your way out. In Life Together, he writes this about confession and justification. In confession, there takes place a breakthrough to community. Sin wants to be alone with people. It takes them away from the community. The more lonely people come, the more destructive the power of sin over them. The more deeply they become entangled in it, the more unholy is their loneliness. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of what is left unsaid, sin poisons the whole being of a person. Man, let me just say that again. In the darkness of what is left unsaid, sin poisons the whole being of a person. Gosh, this can happen in the midst of a pious community, in a good, righteous community. In confession, though, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness in close, in close isolation of the heart. Sin must be brought into the light. What is unspoken is said openly and confessed. All that is secret and hidden comes to the light. It is a struggle until the sin crosses one's lips in confession. All right, what he's saying is, man, it's so hard. It's so hard to confess. Confession is so hard. It's so hard to confess. It's so hard to be honest. It's so hard to say, this is what happened. This is what I did until it happens. And then it's just relief. Just relief and pure goodness and rightness. Later he goes on to say, Since the confession of sin is made in the presence of another Christian, the last stronghold of self-justification is abandoned. The sinner surrenders, giving up all evil, giving the sinner's heart to God, and finding the forgiveness of one, all of one's sin in the community of Jesus Christ and other Christians. Sin that has been spoken and confessed has lost all, all its power. It has been re revealed and judged as sin. It can no longer tear apart the community. When we confess our sin, we say, man, this is what I did. It's not right. It's not okay. It should not have happened. It's on me, and I'm sorry. Period. When it comes out of our mouth, getting there is so painful. Getting there is so hard. But that moment is freeing. It's freeing for us as the individual who has sinned. It's freeing for the community, those who we've sinned against. It's freeing. Because now we can begin the process of forgiveness and restoration and renewal. Now we can say, let's move closer together. Let's pursue Christ together. But as long as that sin is buried, as long as that sin is secret, as long as there's self-justification happening, we can't begin that process. We, we cannot move forward as long as we have not called it what it is. The next piece of this is a greater consequence. A greater consequence. So the fear of what might happen leads us to action. If we're not careful, that action is sinful. And when that action is sinful, we can know it's sinful because of our self-justification. But what ultimately is going to happen is a greater consequence. There's always a consequence to sin. Always, always, always. It doesn't matter if it's public or if it's private. It does not matter. There's always a consequence to sin. But when we justify our sin, the consequence is often greater than what we originally feared. 
You feared failing the test. But now, you're going to be kicked out of the class. You feared losing your job. But now, not only have you lost your job, but now you have no recommendation for, na- for another one because you've been let go on bad terms instead of just kind of fair terms. We're merging with another company. It's over. You feared your spouse coming home, but because you justified and you lied, man, the action, the, the discord is going to be so much deeper than it actually should have been and would have been. The consequence actually becomes greater than our fear. And this is what happens with Samuel. The same thing happens with Satan, right? The, the consequence, um, or with Saul, I'm sorry. The same thing happens with Saul. As Samuel shows up and he sees what has happened and Saul justifies his sin, Samuel looks at Saul and he says, man, the consequence is going to be greater than what you feared. You feared that you were going to lose this battle with the Philistines. Oh, my friend, it's far worse than that. Your kingdom, which was going to be a forever kingdom, is no longer. The God who is with you, the God who anointed you as king and appointed you as king, has now turned his wrath against you. And he's going to remove that from you. He's going to remove that kingdom from you. And he's already chosen another man, a man after his own heart. He's, risen, he's going to raise him up, and that one is going to sit on the throne, and that one is going to be king. Not your sons and your grandsons and your great-grandsons and your great-great-grandsons. No, no, no. It ends here. It ends with you. A new man is going to raise up and be king. One who is a man after God's own heart, who does not fear man but fears God. We're going to see that in the life of David in a few weeks. What Saul fears, what he fears, leads him to a consequence that is actually greater than that original fear. There's always a consequence to sin. And when our sin is generated by a fear of man, the consequence is often greater than whatever we were fearing in the first place. But the last piece is this. There's also a greater grace. There's a greater grace. God says, yes, you are done as king. Your, king, your kingly rule is over. Like, that is your punishment. Like, this is not going to work out for you. It's, it's over. It's done. You, I've turned my wrath against you. And what I've given you, I'm now going to take away. But at the same time, they win the battle against the Philistines. Those countless Philistines, in the next verses, in the next chapter, in the end of chapter 13, beginning of chapter 14, um, the Philistines get confused. These battle-hardened, sharp, talented soldiers get confused. Only God does that. And they begin killing each other. And as they begin killing each other, the Israelites attack. And even though they're in small numbers, the Philistines are confused. They're not sure. Everybody comes out of their rocks and out of their holes and out of their tombs and out of their cisterns, and they attack. And we see in chapter 14, verse 23, it says this, So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond beth That's chapter 14, verse 23. God delivers them. He protects them. He says, Saul, because you have done this, because you, because you have turned your back on me, you have disobeyed my commandments, there's a consequence to that. You are being removed. But I'm still with you, and I'm still with my people. I will not give them into the hands of the Philistines. I will still love them, I will still protect them, I will still care for them. And ultimately, Saul, I'll still love you, and I'll still protect you, and I'll still care for you. I'm going to raise up a greater king 
a king who's actually going to value you, Saul. He's going to and respect you, Saul. This King David, he's going to have opportunities to take your life. But I'm raising him up, and he's not going to take your life. God does not leave Saul, but he does not also leave his sin unpunished. He doesn't leave the sin unpunished, but he doesn't leave Saul. He still loves him. He still protects him. He still walks with him for the rest of his life. The same is true for you and me. In the midst of our sin, in the midst of our fear of man, in the midst of our justification of sin, grace is always greater. We might experience a greater consequence, but grace is always greater. Just because we live in and experience a punishment of our sin, we experience a consequence of our sin, God is still with us. He will never leave us or forsake us. He will still walk with us. And pursue reconciliation and renewal in our lives. He'll woo us back and draw us back into a right relationship with Christ. And ultimately, Christ is what we need. We need a greater king. We need a king greater than Saul, who could do the thing that Saul could not do. We need a king who does not fear man. We need a forever king. And Christ is that king. He's the only one that could ever be that. He's the only one that has ever done that. Christ looks at the cross, he stares at this unbelievable, torturous death. He says, bring it on. Saul looks at the Philistine army, he says, oh, what am I going to do? Christ looks at this, his death. and He knows the pain, he knows the suffering that he is going to have to endure on the cross. He says, not your will, but not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. He looks at the cross, and he could call down legions of angels to, to stop the Roman soldiers and deliver him in that moment. He wouldn't have to experience another ounce of pain and another ounce of agony. At any moment on the cross, he could have cried out and put an end to it. But he knew the consequence would be greater. The consequence would be greater. He wouldn't be able to call you a son or a daughter. He wouldn't be able to share with you his glory. He, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to join him for all eternity. You'd be separated from him. And so he says, I love you more than I love my own life. That's the kind of king you need. That's the kind of king that I need. A king where when we fall short, his grace is greater, his love is greater. Jesus is that king. And the reality is, friends, I don't know where you are in your relationship with him. I know not everybody in the room is a follower of Jesus. But that is the king you need. A king who loves you more than he loves his own life. He's willing to lay down his life so that you might share in his glory for all eternity. That you might know him and love him in return. That's the king that you need. Friends, that king is also a king who is returning. He's a king who's going to reign for all eternity. He's going to restore and renew his kingdom. He is the king of kings. And we will either, we will either be separated from him for all eternity or we will celebrate with him for all eternity. That's on you. It's on you. Do you know this king? 
Are you pursuing this king? Are you treasuring this king? Are you giving your life to this king? Are you clinging to Christ more than the things of this world, more than your own kingdom? Are you clinging to Christ? You say, man, I need that king. And he is returning. And it will be a moment of celebration or sorrow. Friends, you need a king who loves you more than he fears death. He loves you more than he fears man. And cross is that only king. Let me pray for us. Jesus, this morning we come before you knowing that we suffer from a fear of man. If we say we don't, we're deceived. And we've already fallen short. We know that we are afraid of what might happen. What might have happened in work, what might have happened in life, what the doctor might say, what our friends might find out. We're afraid of what might happen. Let us not live in that fear. Let us not act out of that fear. Let us know that our God is greater, that our King is greater. Our king has already rescued. Our king has already redeemed. There is nothing to fear because his perfect love has cast out all fear. Let us walk in that love. Let us look at Christ and know that he loves us more than he loved his own life. So he laid down his life for us. While we are still broken and sinful and rebellion to him, Christ died for us. Help us to treasure him more, to value him more, to cling to him more. Help us to not be a people who justify our sin because our self-justification comes in between us and Christ. Let's be people who are quick to confess and declare with our lips, Jesus, we need you. You are our king. Might you rule in our hearts today. Praise in your name. Amen.